Hello and welcome back to the One Foot Down Podcast. I am Eric Murtaugh. This is our 52nd episode. We have a lot to talk about with Notre Dame's quarterback situation. If you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you've already heard the news. Everett Golson transferring for his fifth year, his graduate season. He graduates from Notre Dame this past week and lets it be known that he is leaving. Um, a bit surprising for some people, not so much for others. I've got young curmudgeon, a.k.a. Phil, back on the podcast with me. Phil, this story broke a little after lunchtime on Thursday. Uh, where were you? And kind of give me your, your initial reaction when you heard the news uh, last week. Um, well, I was actually in, uh, I was in class. I was in a uh, – actually, not in class per se. I was in a uh, simulated patient encounter. Basically what we do, we have uh, actors come in and pretend to be patients, and we get to uh, interview them, take histories, and do physical exams and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I was the first to go in my group. So I, my iPad was down on my chair my phone was in my bag and, um, you know, working with the patient, you know, doing some, some various things, uh, killed it. I, maybe that's a poor euphemism to use in that uh, scenario. <laughs> I, I did, uh, I, I did, I felt like I did a good job. You know, my uh, clinical tutor said, you know, great job. Got to sit down. I'm feeling good, feeling pumped. You know, open my iPad, start taking notes on the next student's encounter, and all I see is the whole screen is blown up with uh, with uh, Golson Golson news, and uh, it, you know, it was, so it was a bit of a struggle to stay uh, focused yeah. the next uh, hour on what the other student was doing with the patient. So, uh, it, you know, it was it took me by surprise and knocked uh, my spirits down a peg. Um, so how, how did you find out? Uh, I was just coming off lunch, doing some work at my desk. I'm usually about 90% of the time stories like this. I'll see them on Twitter. Um, I usually don't like sit there and read Twitter all day, but you know, check in on Twitter every once in a while. Usually we'll see stories like this. I actually was on our site and I clicked on one of the articles. I think there was like three comments and, uh, I just saw it said, well, it looks like Golson's transferring. And my initial reaction was, who would dare to write that and lie to us? But then, like a split second later, I noticed that it was our fellow writer, Adam, who had written it. And then I just had this initial wave of shock. So I went from, like, not believing it to believing it in a matter of, like, two seconds. And so then I, you know, went on Twitter and checked our email and, kind of made the rounds as we were so used to as Notre Dame fans of kind of checking our, our different sites, our different accounts. And I was like, Oh my God, and I was trying to process it and kind of was really busy at work at the same time. And, you know, kind of talking with everyone on the site, trying to figure out what we're going to do. I mean, my initial reaction was, I, I can't believe that this happened, but you know, I think I immediately moved on to uh, trying to cope with it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It didn't, I mean, it wasn't as earth shattering, I suppose you could say as like right. the frozen five, you know, because that was, a, you know, that when that story broke, there was the, the underlying, you know, sort of implication that this could be much huge. worse. That, yeah. yeah, that this that this isn't just going to be five kids. This is going to be five kids going back. We're vacating wins. We're vacating this. You know, at the, the stadium's going to be demolished next week, and you know everything is, you know, 
going to pieces. And I, and it wasn't certainly as bizarre as the uh, the Teo situation. No, uh, not at all. Yeah, you know, so it it's sort of in, in the scope of at least from in my you know activity within Notre Dame football and following Notre Dame football sort of as a alum and as a fan as a student. Uh, it, it it's certainly kind of low on the list of shocking situations. I, I guess I'll say it was sort of almost uh, almost banal. I guess you could say, and in, in, in it you know there wasn't any sort of strange context to uh, what was happening. It just seemed to be a purely football decision. Yeah, I mean the situation. I think, like you said, it wasn't shocking. I was a little bit surprised just because of how everything went during the spring. I think it's, it makes you feel like you can't really trust everything that you see and read. I think that was kind of like my biggest takeaway uh, after seeing the news. Like, wow, you, you just can't really – I don't know if trust is the right word. You just can't really believe, I guess, everything you read and hear. I mean, from you know Coach Kelly to Golson, although he didn't really talk to the media at all during the spring. But, you know, yeah, not surprising at all. Um, as far as his legacy, I know we both kind of – Air on the side of liking Everett Golson, but now that he's gone, um, yeah, how, how do you think they're going to define his legacy at Notre Dame? We're going to kind of go through the, the questions that we posted on our site. Phil didn't partake in that, so we're going to kind of get his take on that. What do you, what do you think Golson's legacy is now, having only played two years at Notre Dame? Um, you know, still a pretty good record over those two years, but kind of ending it the way it did, it was kind of soured him on a lot of people. So, uh, what are we going to think of this guy in two, three, five years down the road? Well, I guess my, my answer would be ask me in five years. Cause I really don't know what to think of him right now. I mean, he, yes, the 2012 season was great. You know, it was great, but it, you know, it almost seems like Everett Golson's career is one that ends in sour notes. You know, yeah. it's, it's almost, it's almost appropriate for him as a piano player you know, he gets to the end of the of, of the phrase, at the end of the line, and then he hits a sour note, because I mean, 2012, yeah, was was the was the loss in in the championship game his fault? No, he played a pretty good game, you know. And does that get lost in how our defense got spanked? Yes, but at the same time, he didn't win, and so there's a sour note there. Then you know, he had a good spring, everything seemed or and everything seemed like it was going to lining up for to just build on that. And then he gets suspended. And then, you know, he comes back strong, redemption story, all that sort of stuff. And then he falls apart at the end. And then, you know, he comes back, has another great spring, and then leaves. So it, it's almost like this crescendo, decrescendo with him, you know. And his legacy, I mean, I don't really know. I don't even know if we can say it's a legacy at this point. I don't know if we can if, if what he's put together, you know, sort of warrants the term legacy. You could say it's his body of work. You can call it a whole bunch of other things. But to me, a legacy is somebody who came and left their mark. I don't think Everett Golson came and really changed things. He didn't. I mean, he had one good season. I don't. I, I don't really think he has much of a legacy at all at Notre Dame, and 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 it's unfortunate. And and I think that that's sort of the theme. If you want to call it what his legacy is. That's the unfortunate part of it is because he could have. It seems like he very well could have, but he doesn't have one. And now that he's elected, and I don't hold it against him that he left. You know, that's his decision. That's a personal decision, and I have 
that's none of my business and that's his his business but you know i think at this point he's i think tommy reese is going to have a bigger legacy at notre dame than ever golson will well that's pretty that's bold that's a bold statement that's a bold i mean i'll tell you though i i i do in terms of you know yeah i know everybody's gonna love what he did you know and it's great you know it was but it was I don't want to say it's a flash in the pan because he was consistently good for, for over a period of time, but it never amounted to anything. You know, you know what I'm saying? In, in, in postseason play or in building the program, you know what I'm saying? He, right. Right. I, I just think that in terms of building the program of keeping the status quo, even, or just sort of moving on and being a team Notre Dame guy, I, I would, I'm going to go ahead and say, I think Tommy Reese has, a, is going to have a better legacy looking five, ten years down the line than ever Golson. Well, it's, it's almost like you want your quarterback to be the rock of your program, you know, the guy that everyone can take strength from. And looking at it from that perspective, I mean, Golson pretty much failed that test. So I, I think that's probably where you're coming from with a lot of that. Also, I mean, he only played two years. You look at most of the quarterbacks in Notre Dame history, you know, Tony Rice basically started two years, but he – won a national championship in the middle. Um, you know, Clawson played three years. Quinn played four. Um, there's not a whole lot of guys that really only played two years. And like you said, that two years didn't really accompany, uh, and at least in terms of the big picture Notre Dame history books, uh, you know, a big major bowl win or anything larger than that. Uh, also, wouldn't you think that maybe Golson's legacy – will be defined by how the next couple of years go in his absence? Um, or do yes you feel like, do you feel like the program is strong enough where there's not going to be a whole lot of change with the way we'll look back at Colson? Here, here's what I'll say. I, I, I don't think Everett Golson was that much of a force that going forward, his abs, you know, his absence or his presence is going to be the deciding factor in how the program performs. And the reason I say that is because I think that, first of all, between Malik Zaire and, you know, sort of overlooking Deshaun Kaiser and going to Brandon Wimbush, with just those are the names that we have that are in the fold right now. I'm not saying he can be replaced because you don't want to, you can't replace that experience until those guys get experience. But there is significant talent coming in. So from that point of view, I can say, you know, I, I don't think he had that sort of building perspective. From, from the point of view that Brian Kelly is – it depends if Brian Kelly is still the head coach because so much of Golson's story is intertwined with Kelly's handling of him and handling of the offense. Now, I like Brian Kelly. I, I, I do. I don't think, you know, of anybody else who's out there, you're going to find a guy who's going to do a better job and, it, you know – it's nice that you can put up a straw man that so-and-so who will never show up at Notre Dame is, can go and do a better job. That's a meaningless argument. But the fact of the matter is if Brian Kelly decides now to run the ball more and we go into this power spread, like you mentioned, um, he's not, you know, and Notre Dame takes off and, and because we have a great offensive line and good running backs and all this sort of thing. And we do well because of that, you know, does that have anything to do with Everett Golson? I don't know. I really don't know. I don't think he was that much of a personality of a force and all that sort of stuff that was defining of the program in this moment. You know what I mean? So I, I don't think he's 
we can even make him a singular character in that at this point in time, I think he had some great moments. I think he did some great things, but I don't think he's a program defining personality or player. No, his, his legacy will never uh, be that. I mean, it's kind of disappointing. I, I had high hopes for him. I think most of our staff going way back to 2011 when he was recruited and he flipped from North Carolina, he was kind of immediately the one guy we were like, Oh my God, this guy could be, you know, that type of a quarterback to, I mean, we basically thought he was the perfect fit for, for Brian Kelly's offense. Now he didn't really turn out to be quite the runner. Everyone thought he would be. And he kind of was a little bit smaller than everyone kind of thought he would be, but, um, yeah, it's just not going to be his legacy, and it's kind of sad. I'm, I'm thinking about everything right now with, with Golson, and I, I just kind of think it's all sad. I, mean, I think he's a good kid. You know, maybe didn't make some smart decisions. Uh, I don't really begrudge him for leaving, although I probably would argue that it probably isn't a smart decision. It kind of depends where he lands. We'll talk about that a little bit later. The one thing I want to talk about, I brought it up a little bit in our post on Saturday, was you know, I, I brought up, his record at Notre Dame and how it was basically the same as Brady Quinn's, but obviously uh, Brady Quinn's, I mean, I guess you could say the progression for Quinn made a lot more sense to Notre Dame fans. He kind of got better each year. Although I might say his 2005 season was better than 2006. If you could rearrange Everett Golson's two seasons into like four chunks. And I just did this just now. If you took, you know, his first handful of games and then his last handful of games that he played. So the beginning of 2012 and then the end of 2014, he had 11 touchdowns and 10 picks. If you took the middle part, so the second half of 2012 and the beginning of 2014, he had 30 touchdowns and nine picks. Now, obviously, we could go into the fumbles and all that, all that, but it would be interesting if his progression started – you know, one way where he's slow and then just cut better. And I just wonder how, what people would be thinking right now if, you know, the 30 and nine, the 30 touchdowns and nine interceptions was walking away instead of kind of how things end in 2014. So I, I think you could probably rearrange a lot of quarterbacks like that, but I always find, I find that interesting with, uh, with Golson and kind of with his legacy. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a fascinating sort of way of looking at his career because on the one hand, when you arrange it like that, it makes perfect sense. But when you look at it in real time, yeah, it, it defies sort of explanation at, at points, you know, that this is the same guy, you know, because it's not one thing that you can say he didn't undergo any adversity and therefore in his previous career and therefore fell apart. I mean, he overcame adversity plenty of times in the 2012 run. He overcame adversity you know, did, did we come away with the win at the end of the Florida State game? No. Or, you know, did he do everything in his power to ensure that we got those six points? Yeah, he did. And he did everything right and overcame all that at the end. And, you know, the rest was history, unfortunately. You know, so you can't say that all of a sudden things got bad and he just couldn't answer the bell. That's what made it so confusing is, you know, he had overcome adversity before. He had sort of led the team through rough patches before and all of a sudden it just you know it all caught up with him and it was bizarre and you know and I guess coupled with the fact that the defense you know physically fell apart uh you know it just made it even more so 
So, I mean, his progression, I mean, and then you throw in the whole missing a season due to academic uh, improprieties. Uh, you know, his progression is so strange in and of itself that, again, it sort of almost defies explanation. And, and, I, and you can't put it on Brian Kelly. I, I don't think you can. Because I think a lot of people want to have it both ways in saying that Kelly is responsible for Golson's poor progression, but then all the great things that Golson did, who, who's responsible for them then? You know, yeah. who's mm-hmm. responsible for that stuff? You know, who, who coached him up to the point that he could go out there and make those throws against Florida State, go out there and make those throws against Oklahoma, you know, and battle in the, in the national championship game, even though, you know, the fight, even though we were well out of the fight, you know, you can't have it both ways. And I think a lot of people want to have it both ways. So, you know, his progression, you know, is what it is. It's, it's just like he is. It's a little erratic. It's a little, you know, sort of, you know, out there. And I, I think that's just the way he is. And, you know, oftentimes with a lot of these discussions, you know, a flip of the coin, you know, what if we beat Florida state and he ends up pulling off that comeback and, you know, what if we get that field goal hold against Louisville and win that what if, game? What if what if Corey Robinson holds on to that ball? Mm-hmm. Might have come you back know. against Arizona State. Yeah, you know, it's. I mean, it, to a certain degree, you don't blame the kid for getting down because it seems like the stars were really lined up against you at mm-hmm. times. But you know, at the other times, you can't you know be you know having the ball out there like it's a basketball and then bracing your falls with it at the same time. So I'm not saying he's without blame, not, not by a long shot, but you know, he put himself in the position to be overtaken in that position. Admittedly, I thought that he had won the position outright in the spring, but you know, his progression just sort of, it's a little confusing. Yeah, definitely. So let's change gears a little bit. Um, and admittedly, this is going to be a lot of speculation on our part, but, you know, if you kind of look at the reasons why Golson's leaving, you could say um, maybe he didn't want to share time with Zaire. Maybe he kind of realized that things weren't going to work out with him and Kelly, and then maybe he was promised a, a job somewhere else. Kind of in your mind, do you think there's one thing sticking out? Some people are saying maybe he wasn't admitted into grad school. I kind of would find that hard to believe, but you never know. Is one of those things sticking out to you as, you know, the main reason? Do you think it's a little bit of everything? I, I tend to dismiss the fact that, and this is why it makes me a little bit, I don't know, it's mysterious to me why he would leave. I don't think he has a job at like a Georgia promise to him. I, I don't see Mark Rick doing that. I don't see uh, Spurrier doing anything like that at all. So, I mean, what do, what do you think about why he left ultimately? Well, I, I think in terms of initially, I thought maybe oh he didn't get into grad school. I mean, I could see a scenario where, you know, Mendoza. I'm assuming he was going for a business degree, so Mendoza would say, "Wait, you've had academic improprieties. We're we're not, you know, no go." But at the same time, the more I thought about that, even to say that that might be unreasonable for QB one, but at yeah. the other point of view is that I don't think Brian Kelly would have been blindsided by that. Yeah, I think if that was in the works, he would have been made aware of that process you know somebody would have given him the heads up that hey your you know starting quarterback is not meeting the the standards for whatever program letting you know um so there's that on that uh angle of speculation i i don't see him having a job 
elsewhere. I mean, a lot of people want to speculate, I suppose, that there's, you know, some booster somewhere in, you know, a shady Lincoln town car, you know, chirping in his ear every time he, you know, goes to get a sandwich or something that, oh, come to our school that you've got a job. I mean, I don't really know. I mean, there's no evidence to that fact. You figure that if he had a job lined up, he would have said, I'm transferring and I'm going here. You know, that he wouldn't, you know, that why, why are we waiting then if you had a job lined up? Um, I mean, it could very well be that he needed a restart with another coach. You know, maybe, you know, if I had to pick a most likely scenario, I would say that either his family and I don't know them. So I, I don't want to say for sure, or somebody close to him basically got in his ear and said, you know, you've gone as far as you can under Brian Kelly. You need to see, you, you know, you're better than this. You need to see what somebody else can do for you. I mean, thinking of, you know, being a 22 year old kid again, you know, somebody listen, you know, telling, telling me that would be, I think very influential. So I could see, and, you know, people telling, cause if you follow that train of logic that you're that good enough, that if once you say you're essentially a free agent, somebody will jump and somebody will offer you. Mm-hmm. So I think that to me is the most logical uh, scenario that basically the, and uh, you know, well, the, the truth of that, I guess will be borne out to see how long it takes somebody or some team to make him an offer. Um, but I think that that's probably a scenario, at least in my mind, that's probably closest to the truth. And again, I don't know. I have, you know, that's pure speculation. That's just, you know, sort of deductive reasoning on my part. Yeah. I would probably agree with you on that. It seems like, I don't know, maybe an agent or his parents, like you said, but again, it's such a hard decision to make for him. And it's, even weirder that he came back to Notre Dame and now he's leaving again. It just adds a whole another layer to the, to the discussion. Um, you know, they could also say, Hey, you want to play in the NFL? You can't be split in time in your last season. Uh, you need to go somewhere. You're the, the guy, but you know, there was a, there was probably about 15 programs that were mentioned or rumors as where he could go. Uh, there's no way in hell he's going to Texas. I know that for a fact. I don't think, Notre Dame could ever let that happen. But for him to just go to a place like Georgia or South Carolina, I just find that really hard to believe. Not that not that he's not talented enough to do that or win the job there, but I don't know. I, I just feel like, you know, we see these free agents every once in a while and it's just a, such a high profile acquisition. And I, I don't know. I don't see that really happening. I don't see him walking in maybe less so with Georgia, but, you know, I think he's probably going to fall to a tier two school. That's just my thought. You know, on, in our article, I kind of brought up Duke and uh, Eastern Carolina. Although someone on Twitter mentioned, and I forgot about this, but uh, ECU's famous offensive coordinator, Lincoln Riley, went to Oklahoma during the offseason. So I don't know how uh, important that might be to someone like Golson. But I think he's going to fall to a, a second kind of two, a second tier school like that. And I think that would probably be better for him. But. I don't know. It's pretty interesting. I mean, there's a lot of talk about Florida as well. Uh, that could be really interesting. Who knows how their offense is going to look under Jim McElwain in year one. But uh, I can't say I really feel – I mean, I think I'll, I'll root for him. Do you think that you'd be able to root for him? I, I'm, I, like I said, I'm just sad. I'm not really mad at him at all. He, he was within his rights to leave and go do his own thing. I'll root for him. I'll watch him. I mean, yeah. I, I remember when I was a, uh, when I was a sophomore – and Zom, he, uh, he, Ishak, I 
Alfred, there was like two more. They all lived in a quad at the end of the hall when they were early enrollees. So I met them. I, I met them a couple of times. I never really talked to them. Um, right. Actually, actually, you know who else I think was in? Uh, was it Aaron Lynch too? I remember I talked to Aaron Lynch a lot my junior year. Uh-huh. I talked to him a couple of times. Um, with some funny stories about that, but uh, the uh, I, I never disliked him as a person. I never had any issues with him. I always thought he, you know, sort of marched to his own beat. And I respect that, you know, in this day and age where, especially, you know, for a college athlete where their whole life is so micromanaged that this kid is still, you know, he, he does, you know, sort of march to his own beat and does his thing, you know, and I, I respect that. I can respect that to it. You know, do I still wish he was playing quarterback for Notre Dame? Yeah, you betcha. But I can respect him and I'll watch him and I'll root for him. So long as he's not playing against us, I'll root for him. So next year, Obviously, Notre Dame's moving on from Golson. Uh, we'll talk about Zaire in a little bit here. Um, I don't know how long you've had time to digest this or really think about it. Do you think this sets Notre Dame back next year? I mean, I, I kind of said I, I was thinking mm, probably at least another game we lose just because of the, the way the season starts. It would be really awesome if we had a, a nice cushy schedule to break in Zaire for the first two or three games and then, you know, have to really rely on him progressing for games four, five, and six, and you know, really pick up steam at the end of the season. But that's just not the way this schedule is constructed, which is really unfortunate. So, what do you think about next year? Just kind of yeah. high, level, high level thoughts, I guess. I mean, looking at it right now, I mean, Texas, Texas wasn't great last year under Charlie Strong. Um, I don't think they're going to be as bad next year but I don't think they're going to be Texas that we all know either. So I think even with Zaire, you know, coming in, starting his first game in Notre Dame stadium, you know, that, so there'll be plenty of butterflies there. I think that's still a very winnable game at Virginia. That should be a pretty winnable game then versus Georgia tech at home. Um, Georgia tech, I think, you know, just the style of offense they run is going to be a real grinded out sort of game. And I think it's going to be, dependent a lot on the defense of how we can handle that. Um, but I think Golson's going to, uh, sorry, excuse me, look at that. Zaire is going to have to uh, uh, find a way to put points on the board there. against UMass, UMass is, well, it's UMass. We, that, that sh- that's a nice cushy game for you. And then at Clemson, and that's one I think we drop. Um, when Golson at the helm, I, I thought Clemson was, was, was a very winnable game. Um, now with Zaire, uh, I don't really know. I think it's you know we I think we dropped that one just just because um, Navy Navy's Navy uh, USC probably dropped that one too. Uh, Temple should be a win Pittsburgh and then Wake at the end. Um, yeah, it's not a well constructed schedule in terms of breaking in a new quarterback. That's for sure. Uh, you know, so I, don't, I, I hope, you know what, I don't know. I mean, Zaire came in and beat LSU with admittedly a lot of help from Golson, but, you know, let's see. Let's just give the kid a chance to, to do it. I think uh, kind of looking at that schedule in the first seven games, I think got to get through that USC game five and two. If they can do that, I really think they can run the table. They should be able to win the remaining games uh, before that. Uh, regular season finale at Stanford, give yourself a chance to win 10 games. Um, man, I don't know if like a nine and three season 
I don't know how people are going to react to that. Ten and two is a lot different. You get that double-digit win, then you have the bowl game. Who knows what happened with that? It's not a playoff year, but I guess all but the worst of our fan base would be, you know, pretty happy with that. So, uh, like I said, five and two for, through those first seven games. Can Zaire do that? I don't know. It's it's really tough to say. I mean, the one thing with that Texas game, and I didn't put this in my preview of them last week. If you look at the team that they teams that they lost to last year, they lost to BYU, UCLA, Baylor, Oklahoma, Kansas State, TCU, and Arkansas. Those teams won like eighty percent of their games. Like if you, and that's kind of scary. I was like, wow, they. I mean, they got blown out by BYU early in the season. Um, you know, they played Baylor close for a while, and they kind of got run out of the building there. K State shut them out. TCU kind of killed them. So, I mean, you look at some of those games, they got killed by Arkansas. But Arkansas was one of the best teams in the country at the end of the season. Um, yeah, that Texas game scares me. But I, I think you got to – I don't know. I'm, I'm doing my Georgia Tech right up for a couple weeks from now. And, man, that game scares me. If we can beat – if they could start 3-0, I mean, I think that would be just awesome. And I think that could really get the ball rolling, even if you kind of accept that there might be losses at Clemson and against USC. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I don't know enough about Georgia Tech's defense to say like this is gonna be. I just know their offense more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I just that just tells me that look, if we're running the power spread, they're running an option. This is gonna be a real good old fashioned grounded out, smack in the mouth game, which which is gonna be great to watch, you know. But so long as the offense can execute and, and hang tough with it, and again, you know. Malik Zaire being the quarterback is, is, I don't think, the primary determinant of how many games we win next year. I, I don't think it is. Nor do I think Everett Golson was the primary determinant of how many games we win this year. I think they make up a significant component of it. But um, it's the question of year two in Brian Gangorder's defense. We have depth. We have a lot of question marks in the talent department. Well, we got a lot of guys coming back and a lot of guys, you know, in a second year in a complex system. And I think that's a much greater or much more significant determinant of how the team is going to, you know, what kind of numbers the team's going to put up in terms of wins and losses next next year than, you know, is, you know, are we going to be more run heavy mm-hmm. in, in, you know, sort of a direct opinion for that. All right. So I know you have some thoughts that you want to talk about with, with Malik Zaire, I mean, I don't know if you want to break into uh, what you have there or, you know, you want to just give me your thoughts overall with kind of what you're expecting from Zaire, how you kind of feel about him taking over the program now. There's, yeah. a, lot to like, there's a lot to like with him. Uh, yeah, and, and, and that's that's it. I mean, it's there's a lot to like about Malik Zaire, and I like Malik Zaire. I know, and I'm not, I don't, I'm not reneging anything I said last week. Where, you know, where I said I'm a big, I'm, I was firmly entrenched in the Golson camp. Everything I, I stand by everything I said last week um, or two weeks ago, whenever we recorded that podcast. Um, I still think he's a one read and run quarterback. And I spent some time this week when I had some downtime looking at film from the LSU game and the, and the blue and gold game. And I was looking for some hint that he was going to move his eyes and look to the second guy. And he wasn't doing it. Um, but that's fine. You know, he's again, he's a sophomore quarterback. Learning, still learning an offense, still 
learning to play the position. That's fine. Um, I think he can start to put it together. I think what we're going to see is something of a Golson progression uh, in Golson in 2012, you know, sort of, you know, start off a little slow and then, you know, build up. I think he's a bit more of a dynamic player because of his running ability than Golson was. I think he will throw it away a little less uh, and, and try and get positive yardage. So I think from that point of view, uh, you know, he can have maybe a quicker edge on Golson and, uh, at least in terms of a development point of view, not in terms of an absolute sense. I still think the offense would have clicked a lot at a much higher level under Golson. And I'll also tend to be a run first guy. I like, I like it when we get up there and run the ball and pound it down the opponent's throat. That's just my, my take on the game. Um, but the one thing I do want to talk about, and this is sort of what you were leading me into um, was Zaire's leadership. Um, mm-hmm. Cause it's it, uh, people have been making a lot of it um, in the last, a couple of weeks. Um, and I didn't mention this on the last podcast because last podcast I was coming out as pr- so pro Golson um, that I didn't want to sound like I was piling on Zaire. I don't want to do that um, out of respect for a kid, you know, was putting in the work and, you know, was just, you know, a, a fellow student, you know, fellow, fellow Notre Dame individual. Um, I don't, I don't want to pile on the kid. Uh, but all this talk about him being a fiery leader uh, sort of makes me a little nervous uh, because, you know, those kinds of leaders are rarely the most successful kind. I mean, they look good in movies, you know, Bill Pullman at the end of, you know, Independence Day and all that sort of stuff, <laughs> you know, and that's great. That it makes it looks great in movies. But I think that there's but I think that's where a lot of people get their sense of what a leader ought to look like, um, you know, in my mind, you know, a leader is going to be someone who's in control of his emotions and, you know, and is steady when, you know, sort of the going gets tough, you know, and I'm not saying that Golson was that guy. And frankly, I don't think he was, you know, I think he was quiet for a whole different set of reasons than, you know, he was a quiet, steady leader. Um, and to be honest, I don't necessarily want the guy whose only quality is to fire everybody up. You know, if Malik has other qualities, I want those to shine through. Um, and, and sort of to illustrate my point, I'll, I'll give you two, I'll give you sort of two examples. So one from my own experience and one from, you know, sort of Notre Dame athletics, um, on our first day in, in, in the anatomy lab here at, here at school, we were given this lecture by this professor and, you know, in a very serious voice about the responsibilities before us and all that jazz. And I remember him saying that we had to learn to control our emotions because people are going to depend on us, you know, as physicians to be sharp in a critical situation. Um, and he said that you're going to need to expect that people are going to misunderstand you. They're going to label you that you're detached, you're cynical and whatnot, but it's, but it, you got to be that way to get the job done, you know, and, and it's important to remain in control of your emotions and see the job through and guide everybody through it. The other example was the Butler game in the, in the, in the NCAA tournament, you know, and this was right after August had the double dribble. And, you know, things looked bad. You know, at that point, it looked bad. I thought, wow, that's just bad luck. And I'll tell you something. Demetrius Jackson was amped. He was tweaking out. He yeah. was, you know, he was fired up, you know, which is to be expected in a young, dynamic player. You know, you expect him to be tweaking out, you know, expect him to be fired up in that situation, you know, and maybe let his emotions get a little better of him. But I remember this vividly, Jerry and Grant grabbing him by the shoulders and telling him to chill out. You know, so I guess my problem is that judging by what I'm reading and what I'm hearing in various places, that people 
would seem to label Demetrius as the better leader because he was emotional in the situation. I'm, I'm sorry, but that's not how it is. All you right. know, I, this team cannot afford, you know, if they're down 10 points, you know, with seven minutes to go in the fourth quarter against USC, that Malik Zaire is going to get, you know, you know, to the, to the point of, you know, extensive emotion and not be able to remain focused. I mean that's the biggest risk you play when you when you have a guy who's that fiery. Now I'm not saying that that's Zaire's only quality. I don't. I've never met him. I don't. I don't see him in practice. I don't know any of that. But what I'm saying is that if that's what everybody is identifying as him, his quality of being a great leader, I think they're a little mistaken. And what I want to see from Malik Zaire in those first games is that in is that he can control those emotions and that he can be fired up before the game, get everybody ready to go, get everybody pick their heads up when things aren't going well, but more importantly, keep his emotions in check and stay on target and get the job done. That's what I want to see. That's the progression I want to see from Malik Slayer. And that's, what's going to tell me that he's ready to be the guy and take this team to, uh, you know, great heights. Doesn't it seem like we've kind of swung from one, part of the emotional scale to the other going from Golson to Zaire. I mean, just from what we know or what we see, uh, you know, in, in practices and games and the snippets that we get to see, I always find it kind of funny because we only really see like 1.5%, you know, of everything that goes on within the program. We dissect stuff on the sidelines. You know, I, I could think of plenty of times where Golson was kind of fiery and talking to the offensive line or, you know, telling one, one of his receivers something that went wrong, but, you know, I guess there is some truth to kind of swinging from one side to the other. You got kind of more introverted Golson and the more outward going Zaire. I think to kind of add to what you had to say, I think obviously we're in the honeymoon phase right now with Zaire. And the thing with that is, you know, we really haven't seen him fail yet. I think for a lot of people that is really exciting. And, and with reason, you know, he hasn't really done anything – terrible yet he hasn't lost a game for Notre Dame but it is kind of interesting or kind of funny to see just how easily everyone has handed him that leadership mantle um, I you know I've kind of try to think about other players in the recent history I don't think anyone has really ever just been handed that mantle so easily as Zaire has um, and I think some of that has to do with Golson some of it with the way he's played um, and some of it is, you know, we, we've heard snippets over the past couple of years about, you know, how Zaire handles himself. You know, we've seen some interviews. He's, he's pretty, he's pretty fiery. He's pretty, uh, sure of himself. Um, you know, back when they were a recruiting class, he was said to be, you know, one of the leaders of the class and trying to recruit guys, you know, and I think for a lot of people that really just makes him a leader, uh, right off the bat, but. You know, he needs to go through a whole season, and that, there's going to be lots of ups and downs. And, you know, I don't know how he's going to respond because we haven't seen him have to fight through adversity yet. And I think that's just – that's the only scary part, I think, for me right now. I, I think he's going to be a good quarterback, but you just don't know how the team is going to respond. I mean, we haven't seen Kelly get in his face yet. That's a whole other issue. You know, if he throws a bad pick, uh, I don't, I'm interested to see how he reacts, you know. People said, oh, well, Golson quietly walked away and didn't listen. Um, you know, Kelly never really had a problem with that. He kept saying that over and over, although fans had a problem with it. 
I, uh, is Zaire going <laughs> to give it right back to him? Uh, we saw Reese kind of do that a couple times over through the years. So it's, it's exciting, but it is, it's, I don't know. I don't know if it's worrisome, but like you said, you, you, just because you're kind of outgoing and, and bombastic in a way that's not necessarily a hundred percent leadership. So, yeah. I mean, think about, I think the one good example is, is Manti Teo. I mean, how long did it take for him to be considered sort of the heart and soul leader of that defense? I mean, it wasn't really until his senior year. Yeah. And I don't even think we started that year kind of, I mean, he was named captain and everyone was like, Oh, you know, best player in defense, but I think it even took him, yeah. you know, maybe to that Michigan State game and the whole grandmother and <laughs> uh, yeah, dying. Yeah. I think that kind of was like the turning point for for everything. But even and know, and he had all those personal qualities, sort of, you know, within him already, and it yeah. it took a while for that to blossom. You know what I mean? So I don't. I, that's why it's kind of so strange that here's this kid coming in. He's played, you know, maybe essentially between USC and LSU a whole game and all of a sudden now he is our fearless leader. And again, I don't dislike him. I I think he's going to do great things for us. I just, these things take time and and, and maturity and things and a whole host of things and experience and falling down on your face. And I'm just, you know, but you're a hundred percent right. The first time Kelly gets in his face after, you know, he, you know, makes the wrong read on the read option or, you know, throws the, you know, throws the ball straight into a, you know, a DB's chest. Let's see how he responds. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this, this yeah, isn't a fair, a fair comparison on my part, but when I think of kind of outward leadership, I think of Brian Smith linebacker and I hated his leadership up until the end of 2010 we actually started winning games and he was making plays. But before that, I mean, he just would jaw with opponents, uh, just, just so outgoing and in, in my mind, such the wrong way. And, and, you know, I'm not saying Zayer is going to be like that, but that is an example of a player that kind of has a, a type of leadership that kind of backfires on you when, when things aren't going right and, you know, you're not making plays and stuff like that. So. And I think you're right that that kind of leadership can be toxic because it makes you comfortable. You know, it's, oh, we got, we just got our butts kicked, but we, you know, we're the bad boys and we're, you know, and we're going to go out and we're going to still judge you. And, and we're, you know, we might not be winning on the field, but we're winning on Twitter. So it's all right. Right. Uh, you know, and that, that can be toxic. And I think you're hundred percent right in identifying that. So we're moving forward with Malik Sayer for 2015. Uh, what about his game are you excited about? I mean, we could focus on his running ability. I, I think he's an, an amazing runner. I really do. I think watching the spring game, I, I think le- he could legitimately get reps at running back if he was, you know, just walking out of the team right now and saying, hey, I want to play running back. I think he could he could uh, get some snaps there. Um, I think he has a lot of the little subtle qualities. You know, Lars went over – uh, the, the run from Greg Bryant last week, kind of the, the little small things that a running back can do. I, yeah, I've seen a lot of that stuff out of Zaire, and that's going to be amazing, uh, and I can't wait for that. I mean, I, I am disappointed that Golson's gone, but the more I think about it, the more I think about, you know, third and three, that's going to be so easy for him to run and get those first downs. You know, Golson could do it pretty well, um, not as, as well as I, I thought he could, especially uh, as his – career progressed, but I'm not going to say that Zaire is going to be automatic. 
but I think it's going to be a huge, huge uh, security blanket for the offense that he can just get two or three yards on those QB powers or a draw. Um, and then on the flip side of that, I think with his running ability, I'm a little bit worried about him being a little bit too amped up. You know, people say, well, he's really he's a lot better than Golson on the option read, which is true. I mean, he's he's proven that so far, and Golson kind of did it well at some times, and then he would just kind of disappear for three games and not do it very well. But just from what I've seen with Zaire, I think he gets a little bit too excited sometimes, and he keeps it, and not, he doesn't really read the, the end all that well, and he just gets so excited he wants to run the ball. I'm a little bit worried about that you know, making some bad reads. And I'm a little bit worried about them over-relying on Zaire like they did in the in the bowl game now. He's probably not going to run it 22 times or whatever he did. But, you know, if you look at that second half, there were a lot of runs where he wasn't gaining that, that much yardage. So, um, but, uh, man, I'm, I'm just so excited to see that one time where we actually run the option read and ProSize takes it 80 yards because that just hasn't, really been a part of Thunder Dame running game, and I think this is automatically going to be a huge boost to the running game. Not that I'm saying we're going to be an awesome running game or running team, but, um, you know, 5%, 10%, 50% boost to the to, to the running game, that could be uh, pretty big for Notre Dame. I don't think we're going to be all of a sudden Ohio State, you know, scoring 50 touchdowns on the ground or whatever, but can't wait to see his running ability over a full season. Hopefully he stays healthy, crossing my fingers. Well, I think definitely he, from the point of view of us as fans, is it's going to be a lot comforting when, you know, you're going to have a quarterback who's willing to get up there and just run over a team like Northwestern. Right. You know what I mean? And I think from that point of view, a lot of people are saying, if that if, if we could just do that, we'd be happy. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I and I agree with you. I, I like his, his running. I like him in the passes that I've seen from him, you know, and I think that they complement his style of play and one that we ought to be utilizing sort of more of a simplified West Coast sort of power offense sort of thing, you know, where we have, we are going to stretch the field vertically and we are going to run slants. We're going to run seam routes. We're going to run, you know, sort of uh, go routes down the sideline stuff like that. Hey, and, you know, make it a quick read, you know, he's got the arm, he's got the velocity, make those quick reads, you know, pick up those, you know, those intermediate yardage, you know, those intermediate pickups and, you know, then run the rest. And I like that. And I think that that's a recipe for success. And I've, and I said this, you know, I've said this to people that, you know, that's what Notre Dame's identity should be. We're never going to be able to recruit the skill players that Oregon has, say, for example, we're always going to recruit good offensive linemen, to, good to superior offensive linemen. We're always going to be able to recruit some decent running backs and tight ends, right? Mm-hmm. Let's 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 build our offense about what we know. And now we got a quarterback that can really utilize those three positions: offensive line, running back, and tight end, right? Now, throw into the mix, you have some phenomenal receivers on this team: Will Fuller. Uh, Corey Robinson has the potential to have a real good year. Chris Brown looks like he's poised to make the jump that everybody was hoping he would make last year. Um, you know, there's a lot of talent at the wideout position. And I think the biggest question going into the season is how is Brian Kelly going to manage 
this potentially run first offense with all that talent and keep all that talent in the game and and keep it as a viable weapon. Um, and that's something to go for. And that's all with the assumption that we are going to go to this heavy run first, two tight end sets every, you know, as in, our, in all our drives. That's that's a big assumption on our part. Uh-huh. We, all thought, we all thought that was going to happen when Golson was at the quarterback position. We all thought that once Tommy Reese was supplanted by Golson, okay, now this, you know, here here it is. Here it is. Finally, here, you know, we're going to do it. We're really going to do it. And that didn't happen. You know, it could very well be that we're going to see Malik Zaire coming out and running essentially the same offense ever Golson did. Would that make me happy? Nah, not so much. But, you know, it's difficult to us for us to say so many months out that this is going to be the big impact because I think that at least given what Brian Kelly's shown is that he might not go to that really run heavy thing. He might, he doesn't in certain situations and some of those situations leave me scratching my head. Uh, you know, maybe not the LSU game. The LSU game was, I thought that was a great game plan and it paid off. On the other hand, I, I mean, I do wish we run the ball more. I do hope we won the run the ball more, but I also hope that he can get to the point with a familiarity of the offense. And hopefully now that he can have the exclusivity of first term reps, that he can start going through, you know, learning those progressions. And hopefully Mike Sanford can sort of drill enough uh, into him between now and, you know, September 5th uh, or whenever the first game is that we, the, of those, he can go to his second read. He can go to his third read. You know, I know that's going to take more time than just the summer, but hopefully get him on the track to developing that skill set, developing that understanding and grasp of the offense that he can, because he has a good arm. He has a great arm. I just want him to be able to use it effectively within the offense. Yeah, we see if they could run the ball a lot. You know, I think a lot of the times people just kind of think, well, we should run the ball 68% of the time, and you got to just kind of set that mark and you call your plays according to those percentages. But, you know, football's never, ever played like that. A couple of things on the whole offensive issue. I think, you know, you looked at the LSU game almost exclusively working with an H-back, whether that be with a tight end attached and an additional H-back or the tight end Koyak kind of working in an H-back with three receivers. We saw the same thing during the spring game, which kind of perked my interest. Say, hey, you know, this looks like kind of the same game plan from LSU. And, you know, if you continue with that offense – you know, it's really interesting to see what you're going to do with these receivers now with uh, Golson moving on and uh, Bull Wallace not coming as a freshman. It looks like Carlisle's job is he'll be on the roster next year. So whether or not you count ProSize among the receivers, you have 12 of them on the roster. And if you're playing, like you said, two tight ends, let's say half the time, that's not a lot of reps for guys like Torrey Hunter uh, Corey Holmes. I mean, the freshmen are basically, I mean, if we are running the same offense we saw during the spring game, then I'm pretty sure unless one of the freshmen blow the socks off during uh, August camp, that they're all going to redshirt. Um, and, you know, I, I, it wouldn't really surprise me if one of them transferred it, if they saw that kind of offense. Now thinking about how the season will actually play out. One of the comments Brian Kelly made, I don't know if it was during the spring, but he said something to the effect of that, we basically game plan based on what we see out of the defense and we try to exploit their weaknesses. And I think a lot of people see that and they go, Oh God, 
You know, if we're going to play a team that's got a pretty good front seven and crappy secondary, we're going to throw the ball a lot. And it'll be interesting to see how they come out next year against a team that's built like that. Say, like, I know we're not playing Purdue, but traditionally Purdue has got a pretty good front seven, and we kind of take advantage of them through the air. But are we going to come out in a game like that with, you know, a power spread offense and try to establish the run early? Um, Or are we going to kind of – alternate game plans. I think that's kind of a worry, right? For people saying, well, we don't really want to come out and have to have Zaire throw the ball 23 times in the first half um, out of the gate when the score is tied or whatever, or it's a close game. And the other factor is, you know, you're saying, you know, quarterback, maybe not the biggest issue for next year. It's a defense. What's going to happen if, you know, we fall back, we fall behind 10, nothing in a game. Are we going to stick to that power spread? Or are we going to open it up? and throw the ball more. I mean, those are really tough questions. You can't really, I know fans like to say, Oh, we got away from the run. We abandoned it. But you know, almost every coach in the country, when you get down by 10 or more points is going to start throwing the ball more. So I think those are the things when you, you know, you look at what Zaire can do. um, It's going to be super interesting to see what kind of offense we have uh, in those types of situations. Yeah. I mean, I can sympathize where people say that Brian Kelly it bannons the run when we're down, like say ten nothing, right? I, I, I think he does. You know, not to the point. Yeah, I understand every coach is gonna, you know, we're gonna pick it up a little in the passing game. But I always get the sense just watching the game is that he is, he, you know, he doesn't just abandon. He abandons it, kicks it down the curb, and you know, <laughs> to you know, down the block. You know, he, he <laughs> you know, he, he, it's like one or the other. You know, it's either we're aerating it or we're running the ball. Uh, sometimes I feel with him, um, and I I don't know why that is, and I, I don't I don't know. Yeah, he definitely uh, doesn't seem comfortable playing from behind. No, he definitely doesn't. He seems like he panics. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if that's the one word I can use, I think he panics. Uh, and I I mean I agree from the point of view that we need to run the ball more to protect the defense, and I think that that was sort of the the crux of the LSU game plan was to protect the defense. So I don't think if the defense is playing well, if we get the defense that showed up against Michigan, right? I don't think we need to run the ball 68% of the time to be effective, an effective ground game. You know what I mean? Because we're not, we don't need to protect them as much. We can take some shots. Um, I mean, again, but always, I always, Brian Kelly's book, play calling always makes me, you know, raise a few eyebrows, especially from the point of view of when we were in 2013, you know, third and five and Tommy Reese was sitting there in an empty set. Those ones always just, I I couldn't understand those. I mean, now with Zaire, Hey, an empty set is just as good as, you know, having a single setback, Mm -hmm. you know? So I guess I'm excited. I think there's going to be a lot of new variety. I think there's going to be from sort of, the pageantry and the sort of the drama of it is and, and the whole evolution of the offense and what we're going to see and what we're going to see next is I think going to be just as much a draw to watch the game as, you know, just wanting to watch the game on a, on a given Saturday. Yep. And if you want to run the ball a lot, you have to win football games. You know, a lot of the top teams in the country, you know, Ohio state, Alabama, they jack up their rushing numbers because they're winning so many games in the fourth quarter and all they do is run the ball and ease their way to victory. You know, we saw some of that during 2012, you know, the Miami game, a couple others where if you're winning, you know, Wake Forest was another example. If you're winning by 
25 points in the fourth quarter, you're running the ball 80% of the time and you end up, you know, jacking up that percentage by 5% by the end of the year. So uh, you got to win a lot of football games in order to run the ball successfully. So I'll definitely see how that works out next year. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about before we, we got out of here and got back to our lives? Yeah. Um, no, I think that pretty much covers everything. I mean, the, the one thing I guess I'll finish on is that, you know, I wish Golson the best. You know, I, I've heard some and read some pretty salty things directed at him, and I don't think that that's appropriate at all. So I, I, I wish him the best, and I hope he, you know, his the rest of his life unfolds, you know, in a positive way. Um, and the last thing I'll say is, you know, I'm excited from Luke Zaire. I, I think he's got a lot of growing to do, but he's a young kid, and that's expected. And I think the future for him at Notre Dame is is uh, very bright. And I, I'll leave it with that. All right. I concur on both of those points. Uh, wish Golson the best and excited for Zaire. This 52nd episode, I'm Eric. That's Phil. We'll see you guys in another week or two. Yeah.